Hello, my name is Claire Heffron and welcome to this week's episode of the Geneva Centre for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues, advancing peace, security and international cooperation. The current state of the peace and security landscape in sub-Sahara Africa is a complex task, with many nations enduring conflict and violence. As conditions improve, the nature of security threats is changing. We discuss this issue with Dr. Alayinka Adjula, a lecturer in politics at the University of York in the UK. And the Humanitarian Policy and Conflict Research Manual on International Law provides an up-to-date account of existing international law applicable to the conduct of air and missile warfare. We spoke to Professor Heinschel von Heineg, Chair of Public Law at the Europa Universitat Viadrina. Regional security challenges in sub-Saharan Africa is changing. New regional and international responses to strengthening the security of African citizens is required. Earlier, we spoke to Dr. Alienka Adjula, who shared with us his insights on the challenges in international security in the region. Firstly, what are the security challenges facing sub-Saharan Africa? There are several security challenges. Um, I normally group them under uh, two categories. Uh, you have uh, intra-state conflicts in Sudan, South, South Sudan, in Mali, in Central African Republic. Um, there are other issues uh, like um, harmed banditry. Um, more recently, climate change has actually contributed to insecurity in the region. Uh, we have uh, issues of changes in precipitation, which then change the dynamics of farming and, uh, and fishing around the region. And when you consider the fact that most of the people from this region, more than 60% of them, actually derive their livelihood from agriculture, any alteration or vagaries of the climate would impact on their sources of livelihood. And when people's livelihoods are being impacted negatively, they could react violently or join groups that could actually promise them alternative livelihoods. And that is why you would see that many harmed groups are, are, not, are never short of recruits in, in this region because there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of unemployed youths who had their basically not thinking about buying a house or buying a car. They are thinking about the, where the next meal would come from. And if this group of people are, are not adequately um, sorted out by the state, they could actually be um, enticed by these organizations to impact to um, fight for them or to join their ranks. So we've seen an increase in, uh, in terrorism in, in places like Nigeria, Cameroon. Um, the Sahel, Sahara is a big one for terrorism. Trafficking is a big problem. Um, a huge um, drug trafficking hub in East Africa. And then xenophobia is um, uh, another problem in Southern Africa. Um, the so-called black-on-black attack um, whereby many people from South Africa feel that um, other Africans are taking away their jobs, taking away their sources of livelihoods, and then demanded that they should leave the country. And uh, they've been attacking them uh, since that time. But another key issue which emerged in the last five years um, is the pastoral conflict. 
Uh, it's in about 13 African countries at the moment, whereby farmers, sedentary farmers, are at loggerheads with um, pastoralists, um, clashes in 13 African countries, and this has resulted in a whole lot of issues on its own. Uh, it's actually um, accounted for more debt than terrorism in the last two years, so it's a big problem facing sub-Saharan Africa. What does regional security governments look like? At the moment, um, the regional security governments are on three or four different categories. So the local um, governance of security, we have the national, we have the regional, and then the international. Uh, so when we talk about the local um, as an alternative to security, because in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, the state is either unwilling or unable to protect its people. And then the people are taking the laws in their hands on the local, at the local stage. So we've seen an increase in uh, vigilantism. So lots of vigilante groups are emerging um, at the local level in order to protect um, lives and properties. And this is um, a key issue because some of these vigilante groups are loosely affiliated to the state. Some of them um, engage in extrajudicial killings. Some of them take the laws in their hands. So although it's a, a form of governance of security at the local level, it also creates a dynamics of problem at, at that level. So that's the first one. The second one is um, the regional initiative. Uh, so there is the, the G5 Sahel, which is a group um, created to end or fight banditry, terrorism, and insecurity in the Sahel. Um, there is the multinational joint tax force against Boko Haram. Um, this is composed of five countries, Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Cameroon, and Benin Republic, um, focused specifically on the issue of Boko Haram in these countries and around the lake Chad axis. Then we have the international um, security governance, which mainly composed of uh, bilateral agreements uh, between uh, individual international states and specific states in Africa. Some countries have link to their, links to their colonial past. So like Mali um, francophone countries um, have um, specific security arrangements with, with France. The same with anglophone countries, which have some arrangements with Britain, sometimes for training and um, equipping the, the forces. But all these creates another dimension or, um, or adds to the governance of security and at the um, international level. And then the other one, which is becoming more important now, is the role of private security companies. It's becoming a big issue now in terms of adding another layer to, to governance of security because it's neither national nor international. So it's, it's kind of somewhere floating there, but there, there is a big stake, especially when you look at the role of China. China um, now has um, the biggest private security infrastructure in Africa in the last um, couple of years. So it's, it also creates the challenge of, of sovereignty in terms of to what extent are African or sub-Saharan African countries actually able to uh, govern security when you have multiple um, agents or agencies involved. Is anything misunderstood about the region? Personally, I think the issue is um, there's a lack of understanding of some of the dynamics of this, of this conflict or insecurity. 
I, I, I would describe insecurity as, as, as a wicked problem, which um, has um, several uh, layers, um, difficult to define, difficult to understand, and then requires multilateral, multifaceted um, kind of approach uh, to solve. So it's, it's very important to understand the underlying issues because when you look at the ways this conflicts are being addressed or this insecurity generally are addressed, there is always a tendency to address the short-term implications without addressing the underlying issues of insecurity, livelihood, sustainability, hunger and poverty, unemployment, the things that actually drive um, insecurity are not still being addressed. So it's easy for um, international um, actors or even the nation states to employ a military approach, but it's never worked as we've seen in many instances, except the underlying root causes are being are identified it's still going to continue to be a problem. So I think the misunderstanding stems from the lack of the, um, the basic understanding of these key issues that have resulted in insecurity on its own. What will you do when you walk into the office and see your organisation in the news facing catastrophic consequences? Today's world is fast-moving and unpredictable. You have to hope for the best, but when you are faced with having to make fast decisions with inadequate information to potentially save the lives of your staff and business reputation, you need to know what you're doing. I am David Horobin. I am the GCSB's course director for two-day critical incident management course. When faced with a crisis, leaders need to assume responsibility to manage the incident. Staff family and stakeholders will quickly be asking questions. At the Geneva Centre for Security Policy, we have designed a specific course for developing crisis management skills for rapidly evolving disruptive events. We can help you avoid turning a serious event into a crisis. Using our specifically designed crisis tools and techniques, you can test how you will react when faced with a crisis and help you understand how to strengthen the muscles of crisis response. We use case studies and simulations to illustrate behavioural and organisational challenges so as to enhance your crisis management skills and awareness. You will understand the complexities and risk of various types of critical incidents and see how effective teamwork can mitigate these risks and enhance trust internally and externally with stakeholders such as family members and in the media. Learn how to react when faced with a crisis in a conducive and professional setting. Hear from the experiences of experts and leave better prepared and crisis ready. Earlier, we spoke to Professor Heinschel von Heineg and he reflects on current legal issues for legal advisors and operators engaged in air operations. Firstly, what is this manual all about? Uh, I think a very honest restatement of the law applicable to air and missile operations during armed conflict. Because there is no specific treaty that deals with these aspects. And uh, there is another private draft uh, which dates back to 1923. And you can imagine that in light of the technology uh, that has developed, of course, and certainly since 1923, 
there was a desperate need to compile it in one document and to provide it to those who are working in the field. Who's involved in putting it together? The group was very diverse uh, and uh, one, well, you could call it result or insight was that at the end of the day, the entire group, even though they came from different backgrounds, were able to agree on all the rules that you find in the manual. Uh, so you have representatives from the ICRC, you have government representatives, you have academics. And this is quite extraordinary to have such a big group be able to agree on a wording of a specific rule. And there are not only there is not only one rule, as you of course know, there are many rules in the manual and they all are based on a unanimous consensus of those experts. And what about emerging legal issues? I think the, we are very often obsessed by the novelty of technologies, believing that a new technology needs new rules. Uh, but as rightly stated by the International Court of Justice in its advisory opinion on the nuclear weapons case, also the experts agreed that the novelty of the technology doesn't change anything and does not necessarily require new rules. but. What we did, in, in particular in the commentary, to address these issues when it comes to the application of a given rule to a given technology, like, for example, automated weapons or hypersonic weapons and so on. What advice do you give? First of all, I would advise those legal advisors or those, all of those who are interested in the topic, actually, to read the entire manual plus the commentary because just reading the manual would not be sufficient for a simple fact. Uh, as you know, with law, you can have different interpretations. And for the legal advisors, uh, it is very important to know the commentary because in the commentary you will see reflected the different positions taken within the group of experts. Why is that important? It is important because at the end of the day, the legal advisor will have to reconcile his legal advice or her legal advice with the respective government position regarding the applicable law. So in that regard, the commentary of the manual also offers options to governments and government officials, in particular legal advisors, to have an arguable position with regard to the applicable law in a given situation. What about air operations? Operators have a keen interest actually in the applicable law. They want to be certain that what they are doing is in compliance with the law of armed conflict. So they would also be uh, taking a t keen interest in anything that is related to their operations, including the law. That's what we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Dr. Alienka Adjula for joining us, along with Professor Heinzel von Heineck. Listen to us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. Bye for now.